podcast number 40 for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. Colonel Ernest Latchford, MBE and MC, wrote every Sunday to his fiancée during World War I and his service saw him deployed to special missions in Persia and Russia. Over a hundred years later, those letters formed a book written by his grandson, Mark Latchford, who joins us to talk about his book and his grandfather. Joining us on the line from Sydney is Mark Latchford. Mark, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you inherited your grandfather's trunk of several hundred letters that he wrote to his fiancée during World War One. Can you start off, please, by telling us a little about your grandfather? Sure. My granddad, uh, who was uh, Ernest Latchford, born in 1889 uh, beside the Goulburn Weir uh, near uh, Murchison, near Shepparton. And he was born into a, a large but rather uh, 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 derailed family in the sense that his father was an itinerant stonemason. Three of his brothers died as infants. And in many ways, his uh, uh his mother was was deserted, and uh, my grandfather was outsourced to an uncle uh, on the Latchford side who raised him in Daniloquin. Um, but I think one observation I would make is that because of that rather chaotic uh, youth, the idea of, of joining the military and having a more disciplined, structured life ahead um, may have been directly linked to uh, that uh, discouraging um, start to his life. He spent most of his education in Daniloquin, and then his uncle, and he moved first to Uchuka, and eventually to Launceston. Uh, but in 1906, he left that side of the family, hooked it across the uh, Bass Strait, and stayed with a maternal uncle, um, an aunt, the fakes, in Auburn and started working at the Coles Book Arcade, which uh, for those of you in Melbourne, um, sounds to me like a dream jo- a job for anyone interested in reading and, um, and books. But it was soon after that that he joined as a volunteer in the fledging uh, militia. He'd been trained uh, in shooting while either in Daniloquin or in Launceston, um, but he joined the militia soon after he arrived in Melbourne. And in about 1910, he, uh, he became uh, joined as a full-time employee, if you like. So he, he joined the militia, but when war broke out in 1914, he was initially kept in Australia. So do we know much about his service uh, before he actually embarked overseas in 1916? Yeah. The, the great thing about what I inherited when my grandmother passed away um, in the 70s was um, uh, she began a romance with my grandfather um, quite early on in his time in, in the militia. And she was on the family farm out at Balan. And as such, we've got a terrific record of 
uh, the relationship from really the very early days, including the time when he was in the militia before the outbreak of war. The letters describe his very realistic view of how long the war would go for, but also captured a commitment to get across to the war as soon as possible. And soon after the outbreak of War in 14, he was bitterly disappointed that the military wouldn't assign him to one of the uh, battalions being gathered, but basically told him he needed to um, stay behind because of his experience before the war, training um, uh, training people in the uh, part of the national militia training scheme that was underway in Australia just before the war. And so he spent... Um, the rest of 1914 and all of 1915 at various camps, Broad Meadow and others, training the people that were heading off to Gallipoli, Egypt and beyond. And when he joined the militia and then obviously the first AI from 1914, do we know what what corps he belonged to, what service he saw? Um, I, I, I presumed he, and the the records imply that he was part of um, the infantry from the from the original uh, 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 start of, of the AIF. Uh, although later on, he was also as part of the instruction corps as well. And then in late 1916, he finally achieved his wish by being embarked offshore. What did he do first? Sure. Well, it was actually early 16, I think uh, I think after 18 months of nagging, uh, the, the high command said, OK, we'll assign you to the 38th Battalion, which was being raised uh, primarily out of Bendigo. And he was assigned as a second lieutenant to uh, that group. And they left in June uh, 16 uh, and went via South Africa, Cape Verde, um, first to Wilshire uh, and the Larkhill camp, like most Australians before him, headed for the Western Front. And there, the 38th Battalion trained for about three months on the, uh, on the, on the Wilshire Plains. And then late in 16, they were redeployed to uh, the Belgian-French border. And he was to spend the next 15 or 16 months, late 16, throughout 17 and the beginning of 18 um, as part of the 3rd Division uh, along the Western Front in Belgium and in France. And then in 1918, he volunteered for a unit, I think, called Dunster Force. Can you tell us what Dunster Force is and what did he do then? Sure. Um, while he was on the Western Front, he, the 38th and he in particular were heavily involved with the Battle of the Seeds and later the disaster that was Passchendaele. It was at Passchendaele where he earned his military cross for pulling together the remnants of not only the 38th Battalion, but also some of the New Zealanders and other members of the AIF. Um, soon after that, uh, the, uh, the British High Command had made a decision to deploy a special force into northwest Persia, or Iran now. And the British asked the imperial leaders, including Monash and Birdwood, for volunteers who were very savvy, very experienced, um, 
uh, officers and men to join this force called Dunster Force, which was actually named after its commander, a British Indian Army officer called Dunsterville. Dunsterville himself was an old-time friend of Rajat Kipling. And the story goes that Rajat Kipling uh, fashioned his, his character, Storky, on Dunsterville. So there was about uh, 20 Australian officers joined 20 Canadian officers, a few South Africans, a few New Zealanders, and some Brits, and were pulled from the Western Front and from their units. And after some very basic briefings in London, headed off the long way around across the Mediterranean, through Egypt, around to Basra, modern-day Iraq, um, to head up towards northwest Persia. Now, Dunster Force was commissioned for a number of both economic, political and humanitarian reasons. In late 1917, the, the, the Second Russian Revolution had meant that the, uh, the, the, the Russian forces, not only on the Eastern Front, but also keeping in check the Ottoman Empire in the Caucasus, uh, was no more. So the idea behind Dunster Force was to protect the, the bridge of land that, that was separating British India, which includes what we now know as modern-day uh, modern Pakistan, from the Ottomans. Um, there was a, a big fear that the, the Ottoman Empire, helped by the Germans, would make a push after the collapse of the Russians across Persia, which was nominally independent, but very corrupt and very disorganised, and therefore push into British India. So Dunster Force was designed to cut that off, to perhaps bolster some of the Brit the anti Bolshevik Russian forces that were around in the Caucasus, also to protect the oil that was around Baku uh, and also in southern Iraq and Iran. Uh, the, the, uh, once this, the Dunster Force group that was recruited for the Western Front arrived um, in Basra, they took a very slow boat trip up to Baghdad and then using some old, uh, some redundant T Ford utilities, uh, Model T Ford, uh, they crossed the mountains into uh, northwest Persia to discover a humanitarian debacle, which they also had to deal with. The Ottomans had been uh, purging their lands of Armenians and Assyrians for some time. So they uh, one of the responsibilities of Dunster Force, not planned, was to really provide the most basic um, support to these Armenians and Assyrians that were uh, escaping from northwest Persia and the Ottomans. Uh, the, the, the force broke up uh, and had different responsibilities and missions. Uh, some of the Australians went with Dunsterville himself to try and defend what is now Azerbaijan's oil fields, Baku and so forth. Uh, others specifically went to rescue a big cohort of Assyrian, Assyrian refugees, the, the Christians from northwest Persia. In my grandfather's case, he, because of his background as a pragmatic trainer of those destined to fight, was missioned to basically 
try and bring together from the Armenian refugees a guerrilla uh, force that would take on the Ottoman Empire or the, the Turkish forces in that part. So much of 1918, once Ern and his colleagues got there, was trying to take these refugees without food, clothing, or any sort of military history and try and forge them into an effective guerrilla force. And, and Mark, what sort of period in the war are we talking about? Are we now um, later on in 1918? Yeah, they left London in January 18, and they got to Persia in about uh, April, I think. And, yeah, it was really during the northern summer uh, of 1918 that this was going on. And, uh, uh, and it continued right through to the Ottoman armistice, which was about a week or so before the general armistice on the 11th of November. Uh, at that stage, the attempt to protect Baku and, and to help the non-Bolshevik Russians had collapsed. And the British High Command had basically told Dunsterville himself to withdraw back towards Baghdad. And uh, the letters indicate that, uh, uh, that from about mid to late October, the, the, the force was realising they were going to consolidate back into Baghdad. And there's a great passage in the letters uh, describing... Uh, some of the Indian soldiers, because a large chunk of Dunster Force was made up of, of Indian, British Indian Army uh, uh, foot soldiers, and uh, hearing the news that the armistice had been signed from um, some of the Indian soldiers uh, who heard it first. So technically, in November 1918, as we know, the, the war, as as they knew it, was, was effectively over with the signing of the armistice. But... Um, your grandfather, Ern, didn't go back to Australia. Yeah, this is one of the great mysteries of our family is that he did propose to his girlfriend before leaving Australia, made a conscious decision not to get married because he was worried he, he might be killed. But when everyone else in November were making plans to come home, he signed up for more. And uh, it may have been part of a concern about his future career, recognising he really didn't have a profession beyond the military, unlike many of his colleagues who volunteered from uh, mainstream professions. So word got out that the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War was expanding, and somewhere along the line, probably in Baghdad, he volunteered to join um, a mission called the Knox Mission, which was heading to Siberia. Now, the, the, the Allied intervention you know, followed the, the Bolshevik Revolution. It was really an attempt by the Western powers, which also included Japan, to try and uh, overthrow the Bolshevik regime by supporting the various diverse groups around the perimeters of Russia. And some of those were imperialists, wanting the return of the Romanovs, even though the Romanovs were dead by that stage. Um, others were more social democrats. A chunk of Australians on the Western Front joined with British units and went to the north, Archangel, just near Finland, and intervened there. 
Uh, a number of others were involved in the Crimea, where there was another um, anti-Bolshevik intervention. But the Siberian one was interesting in the sense that the, uh, the initial trigger for that was actually the Japanese. The Japanese, as you know, were, were allies of, of ours in the First World War, and they'd already occupied in 1895 Korea and Taiwan, and they'd beaten the Russians in 1904-5. So they had a very significant presence in Manchuria and so forth. So as the Bolshevik Revolution occurred and the Russian Empire collapsed, the Japanese were moving into Siberia. And the West, the French, the British and the Americans said they decided that rather than facilitate the Japanese Empire expanding across Siberia, they would also participate. And the Knox mission was one of a number that was designed to uh, go and try and organize the white Russians, the anti-Bolsheviks, into some sort of fighting force so they could be victorious in the civil war that had erupted all over Russia in 1918-19. So Ern, instead of following his mates home via India and, and onto Australia, he headed to Vladivostok, via India, via Singapore, via Shanghai, Hong Kong, via Japan, but he eventually got to Vladivostok. And what's interesting, I suppose, to us, when I discovered the letters and the photographs and subsequently consulted with the War Memorial, was that Ern was the only Australian to head that direction. A number of them went to, uh, to Archangel, as I mentioned, Mermansk, but he was the only one who landed in Vladivostok and went inland. And uh, once he got to Vladivostok, and that we're now talking early 1919. So much of the world was repatriating their troops. Those troops were being integrated back into the, their you know, pre-war professions or economies. Some of them were assigned soldier settlements and things like that. But Ern joined a group of others, Brits primarily, some Canadians, and headed across Manchuria and Siberia, several thousand miles to Akutsk. He travelled on the famous Trans-Siberian Railway, which was the only uh, mode of communication in that part of Russia. They sat in or on top of old boxcar carriages to get there. And he arrived in late winter or early spring in Akutsk, which was the centre of anti-Bolshevik white Russian forces at the time. While he was... So the Knox mission was clearly told not to do the fighting, although you know, the books show that uh, quite a number of Allied troops went much further west than Akutsk to Omsk, to Ekaterinburg, which is where the, the Tsar and his family were executed. Mm. And did some of the fighting as well as supporting the white Russian forces. In Ern's case, he was missioned to train uh, a hodgepodge of officers um, in Akutsk in deep snow initially. Then during the hot, humid summer, he built a rifle range, modelled on the rifle range he'd used out of Port Melbourne before the war. And in the middle of the Siberian prairie, if you like, he set about training uh, white Russian forces on 
allied musketry, um, small arms, machine guns, and so forth. And um, again, the letters, because they were no longer subject to the censorship that applied during World War One, the letters are fascinating because they describe, you know, uh, Russian society, uh, the diversity of people um, on the Trans-Siberian. It wasn't only the Japanese, the Americans, the Brits, the Canadians, but it was also um, uh, a lot of people, refugees from Moscow and St. Petersburg, and uh, also included the Czech prisoners. So when did his war service actually end with the Knox mission? The, you know, the White Russians were quite successful early on in 1919, but then Trotsky and his Bolshevik forces, they got the upper hand um, and pushed the White Russians back toward the Trans-Siberian. At the same time, people were just getting fed up with, to, to quote a modern term, endless wars. And in particular, President Wilson in the US. And he said, I'm going to bring my troops home. And the similar sentiment applied to the imperial forces, the Brits and their you know, Canadian, New Zealand, Australian allies. So um, it, was, it was about October 1919 that the Knox mission got word that they were wrapping up. And ahead of the successful Russian and the Bolshevik forces pushing along the railway, Ern uh, uh, withdrew to Vladivostok left that of Bostock around in the middle of winter in, in 1919, um, spent some time in Japan waiting for a ship to get home, and he eventually reached Melbourne in March 1920, some uh, nearly four years exactly to when he'd headed off. And what about his post-war service? What did Ern do after the war? Uh, again, we think one of the reasons he signed on for more was that he was he realised that he really didn't have an alternative career except the military, but he was also realising that post-World War One there'd be an extraordinary shrinkage of armies around the world, including in Australia. But he was determined to stay in the army. So when he got home, he lobbied to stay with the military. By this stage, he'd been promoted first on the Western Front, as a, to a lieutenant and then to a captain. Um, but when he got home, he realised to stay in the army, he had to take a demotion. So he went back down to warrant officer rank and he was deployed um, to, with part of the small instruction force to what was then the Australian Musketry School in Randwick here in Sydney. And he was to spend most of his subsequent career, which was... Uh, from 1923 to 1949, in that small arms school. The musketry centre became a small arms centre. Um, first at Randwick, then to Bongilla, where it was evacuated during the Second World War, and finally to Seymour. And Ern stayed with them as chief instructor and eventually became commander just before World War Two. In many ways, and, and when he passed away... Um, a number of the tributes paid to him by uh, by those people pointed out that he trained not only those who fought in World War One, 
that he was instrumental in the training of the next two generations of the Australian Infantry Corps. Mm. And, and he left the army in 1949 as Colonel Ernest Latchford, MC and MBE. He got his MBE in 1938. That's right. And the, as I said, the MC was, was um, uh, earned in Passchendaele and the MBE related to his service um, as part of the instruction uh, as commandant of the um, small arms school. He... Um, at one stage, he was quite frustrated. He couldn't serve at the front in World War II. Um, and he joked at a speech he gave at an RSL club, I think, at Tallangatti, uh, uh, that said, uh, I seem to be hunting for Japanese submarines up and down the Murray. Uh, nevertheless, when he hit 60, uh, he was encouraged or was required to retire. So in 49, he and his wife retired to Melbourne. Uh, for the next 10 years, he worked as a... a uh, a tip staff or a clerk with the Victorian Supreme Court, so helping organise the various justices. But he retired properly in um, 1960 when he was about 71. Mm. But this, despite the long romance with his wife, Linda, um, or his fiancée, Linda, at the time during World War One, he did eventually marry her in Ballarat in 1921. Uh, she was a country girl from Balan. And um, uh, they only had one child, uh, even though he had plans for a lot. And that one child, a boy, was born in 1927. Uh, and that was my father, Kevin. Mm. And uh, Kevin um, also had an army career. Um, he often told us the story, he really didn't have much option. His father expected him to go into the military, and but do it in, a, in a, uh, a professional way and was encouraged to go into Duntroon. And uh, and, uh, and Dad, my father, had a, another 40-year career in the Army like his father's. Now, Ern wrote letters every Sunday during the war back to his fiancée in Australia, and this has led to your book called The Letters of Lilyvale. Tell us about your book. Sure. I mean, the, the letters were a joy. I found them as a teenager after my grandmother died. And I, I sort of, as I'd been studying history at school and was later to do some at uni, I decided to you know, keep them. And they sort of followed me around the world. But I never had a chance to transcribe them or really digest them, even though they were beautifully written. Uh, uh, I don't know whether it was time at the Coles Book Arcade or whatever it was, or just his, his biggest reading. They're easy to read and they're beautifully written. And uh, finally, when I retired from my corporate career, I had a chance to really um, get into them and research the story around them. And it, it produced the, um, the core of the book, uh, Letters to Lilyvale, which, which I've now published. Uh, the letters, Lilyvale refers to the property at the land that my grandmother was living on and therefore the destination of these letters. Some of the letters were written on the boat. The first one actually was dropped off um, at Port Lonsdale with the pilot at the boat moving. But they were written on scraps of paper in the Western Front. They were dusty from the northwest um, uh, of Persia, and uh, they were scribbled on notepads in Siberia. And surprisingly, because they were numbered, 
they're all nearly uh, still together. I think there was only two that I couldn't find uh, that may have got sunk with a, uh, a submarine attack somewhere in the process, but they were all kept um, from the moment they were received all the way through till I got hold of them. So I thought I'll try and share my grandfather's story with more people through his letters because his letters speak eloquently and honestly about what he was seeing. And then around that, about half the book of the letters and the other half are, I suppose, my bridging chapters to explain the context of how the letters were written and also the, the sort of the bookends of my grandfather's life. What what a, what an amazing story. And the book is called Letters to Lily Vale, Ernest Latchford MBE MC in France, Persia and Russia from 1916 to 1919 by Mark Latchford. Where can people purchase your book from? Okay. Uh, the, the publisher printer um, has an online bookstore and I'll just get the web address up for you. Um, www.openbookhowden.com.au and if you just search for Lily Vale, uh, uh, it will come up. It retails for $30. Um, it was a labour of love, not, not for any other reason I wrote it. Um, that, and uh, $30 sort of covers the, the, the production and uh, plus postage. If any of your listeners would like a, a copy signed, um, they're also most welcome to contact me directly on mark underscore latchford at hotmail.com and I can dispatch a signed copy uh, uh, from, from here in Sydney. And, and we'll make sure we'll post those relevant links along with the podcast as well. Mark, w- what an amazing story. And, and to have those letters still in the family and to be able to uh, produce a book to tell Ern's story is a, an amazing feat. So thank you so much for your time today. No, it's my pleasure. It's, it's a privilege to have the letters and also to have the photographs that go with them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I'm really delighted that I can tell the story of, uh, of one man's service to this country. Uh, as I've often said, uh, every family has a story of service that is worth telling. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links for this podcast on our Facebook page, including contact details for Mark. We're keen to hear your feedback. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, and if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. You can help support this podcast via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com forward slash thanks for your service. Your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.